Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Tim M. West. Tim M. West is a poet and hip-hop artist, a youth advocate, and an educator and scholar. A native of Cincinnati, Ohio, he was raised in both Little Rock and Taylor, Arkansas. West has traveled the nation speaking about issues at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and social justice. He received his Bachelor of Arts from Duke University, a Master of Arts from the New School for Social Research, and a Master of Arts from Stanford University. He's also the author of several books, hip-hop projects, and appears in several anthologies. In 2004, he started The Front Porch, a performance art series that has mobilized hundreds of artists for more than a decade. He has also appeared in multiple documentaries at the intersection of hip-hop and Black masculinity. He served as inaugural faculty at Oakland School for the Arts impacted educational outcomes as an English teacher and basketball coach at Cesar Chavez Public Charter High School for Public Policy, and as director of youth services at Center on Halstead in Chicago. In 2015, he released his fourth book, Predispositions, a poetic memoir that contains in part a chapter about his experience as an educator. In October 2016, he released his sixth solo hip-hop solo project. The same month, he was named 2015 LGBT History Month icon. Tim M. currently leads Teach for America's National LGBTQ Community Initiative, advancing safer and braver classrooms for LGBTQ students pre-K to 12 and their educators. Teach for America is a nonprofit organization whose stated mission is to enlist, develop, and mobilize as many as possible of our nation's most promising future leaders to grow and strengthen the movement for educational equity and excellence. A celebrated poet and hip hop artist, youth advocate and educator, Tim M. West embraces the power of words to challenge ideals of masculinity and race. Tim M., welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm great, great. It's always a privilege to be able to talk to you as someone that I have looked up to as a mentor and admired for many, many years. So it's it's an honor and a privilege to be on your show today. Well, I'm always glad to talk to you. And, you know, April is Poetry Month. And one of the things that I like is, like, 
you're a poet and more, and like I often tell people, like to me, poetry sort of flows through your life. You know, I know many people who are poets, and they are doing tons of things, but that thread is always there and impacts everything you do. So, you, you know, they say you can't go home again, but you did. Mm-hmm. You're back in Cincinnati. That's How funny. Does it feel? And I've actually quoted that saying that you can never return home. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say that interestingly. You mentioned poet. Um, you know, I've, I've done a, a lot in hip-hop among them in terms of hip-hop and poetry. And uh, I am working on a best-of project because I, mm-hmm. I intentionally want to do a lot more collaborative work. Um, my entry point into hip-hop was with a group, uh, and so I missed that sharing the stage and the energy that you get when you perform with the group. And so I'm, I'm actually putting out a best-of project, but it's interestingly entitled Prodigal Son, uh, mm. the best of Tim and West, And I think it, it also speaks to the, the biblical um, you know, uh, story of the prodigal son and, and just the return back home. Uh, we left Cincy under not ideal circumstances, you know, poverty, evictions, um, all sorts of challenges. And, and the reason Arkansas became viable was because that's where my mom is from. And, you know, when you don't have a lot, but you have a house over your head, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, you, 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 you may be poor, but at least you have a place to go. And, and I think that was why we left. But I think all those years between leaving at, at age, you know, four and, you know, Cincinnati has always remained the place I was from. And, um, and I always imagined uh, a day when I would better get to know it and explore it. Uh, you probably remember Doug Cooper Spencer, who's an author here in Cincinnati and uh, wrote a book called This Place of Men. And it was actually through that book that I first really re- deeply reconnected through this story of two uh, African-American uh, gay men, I guess, living on the download and trying to navigate their love in this city. And uh, that was how I came to know Cincinnati again as an adult. And since that point, I've just really reconnected and, yeah, decided to set some roots here in the Midwest. Uh, so, uh, and four hours from Detroit. So, uh, Hey, hey, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking, that's why I say one of the best things about being in Cincy is the proximity to Chicago and Detroit. So, mm-hmm. uh, two cities that I have a lot of love for. Well, we have a lot of love for you. I've, I know I first met you in Chicago, but then I've seen you several times in Detroit, like you come up or hotter than July, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's really good. And, you know, for me, it is hard to separate the poet from the hip-hop artist. For mm-hmm. you, yeah. which, which came first? Oh, I, I think absolutely poetry. Um, mm-hmm. um, because I, I think that while, you know, while some hip-hop is poetry mm-hmm. you know, you know uh, I think that you can't say the reverse right and so I think uh, poetry for me there's um, an article that I was reading and I think it's just an argument that many people have made about poetry by nature being queer right because mm. um, poetry in essence is doing things with words um, that don't necessarily fit the logic of the way that we typically communicate right um, you know, where else can you talk about a sky that breathes or, you know, a mountain that roars, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, you know, we do things as poets with words that are not 
that are unconventional. And I think that there was something as a, as a kid that I was drawn to that aspect of poetry. And I think some of that was my rooted in my identity and my early understanding that, you know, I saw the world different, that I experienced the world different. Yeah, my, my father being a pastor, when you when you grow up hearing almost daily that you are an abomination <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and you are struggling and striving every day to believe that's not true, it automatically makes you question everything about the world. It's like, okay, like, <laughs> I don't know if I should be believing all of these dominant narratives that are being thrown at me because if, if I'm to believe this, then, then I am to die, right? I am not worthy mm-hmm. of living. Uh, and I think, I mean, despite there being moments in my life, high school and a suicide attempt, uh, one of those moments when I, I actually thought, well, maybe everybody's right. Like maybe, you know, maybe it's not, maybe I'm not meant to be here and and find the love that I desire. And, and, and for me, like, you know, when, as a lot of kids do, having to contemplate that, that um, awful false choice of, you know, um, Either I, I stay alive and struggle with this identity for the rest of my life, uh, or I accept it and live in some kind of shameful sin. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. well, no, there's, there, there are options that we have that sometimes we don't consider because they've never been introduced to us. Uh, and I know for me, that's why Tongues Untied plays such a pivotal role, like seeing a film in my teens where you had a, uh, black gay men asserting and affirming their identity. Um, and I just know how remarkable uh, that film was for me to watch, uh, especially in in light of the fact that most of those men, or many of those men, have uh, have since passed on. Um, but I think in their, in their dying, I wanted to make sure that they spoke truth to power um, mm-hmm. and elevated their stories and experiences. Did you find... I mean, I was talking to J.P. Howard, and she was saying that, you know, that she found her voice as a lesbian in poetry. Like she said, she can recall going into the library and finding the this section, and there was Audre Lorde. There was Pat Parker. Did mm. you find um, a place? Who were the, the poets that sort of you found that helped you develop your voice or that you saw yourself in? Interestingly, um, I found affirmation in my gay or my queer identity through black feminism. So Mm -hmm. it was actually Audre Lorde um, that was one of the first voices I was introduced to that really spoke to me as a poet. Uh, And this is before, like in the late 80s, you didn't have gender sexuality studies in colleges, you know, what you did have, like some schools had women's studies, uh, and some of those schools that had women's studies did begin to talk about things like intersectionality. Uh, within the spectrum of women's issues, you did have conversations about sexuality. A lot of the women that were fundamental uh, to the women's movement were lesbian, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, my friends in Chicago jokingly call me a lesbitarian. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think in part is because when I came out in college, I came out with, with five women of color, five black women that went to North Carolina Central. I wasn't even at North Carolina Central. I was a Duke, 
but they were at an HBCU. They saw me. They they saw that I was queer when I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> they were just like, mm-hmm. he's family. <laughs> Let's talk to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was in a record shop. I remember these two women, like, just basically, and I was like, are they trying to hit on me? What's going on? And they, they were just like, no, we knew you were family. And I was like, how did you see it? Was it that obvious? Because, I, you know, I don't present in the eyes of many as like particularly stereotypical. And they would just said, no, there was something about your energy that we just, we knew you were family. And I, you know, so I embraced that culture, uh, that culture with women. Uh, I think it was a little more awkward later on when I got pushed by them to, you need to meet some guys. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. but I'm comfortable hanging with the lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> you had um, your lesbian card and you were going to hold on to it tight. I did. I was reading Audrey Lord and, 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 you know, black feminist literature. I remember when I got the Homegirls anthology, um, and I remember the, how, how pivotal the Homegirls anthology was in my own you know, social and emotional uh, development. And so, and it's interesting when you, I think there was a sense in which at that time um, that that black lesbians were far more politicized around their identities uh, than I saw gay men be, and which is also why when tongues untied, when I saw that a couple of years later, it was like finally some, some brothers who are also politicizing their identity Right, because I hadn't really seen that before, um, and and uh, having summer internships in New York and going to gay men of African descent meetings and uh, just all the brothers that I would meet. And back then, I was the baby gay. I was like 18 years old, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. trailing all the adults around. You know, most many of whom are still around and have been just amazing mentors and and guides. I remember the early. Uh, I'm sure you remember, you remember going to any of the black gay and lesbian leadership conferences mm-hmm, mm-hmm. back back in the day when we had like one big convening of black gay activists um, and, and being one of the younger voices there. Uh, so, uh, you know, you know, my 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 involvement in the space has been has been largely formed by by black women, by by lesbian and bisexual women, and and then sort of. How do I bring that voice to uh, the space uh, where black gay men are and, and continue to push us to um, to see that our identity, or at least that our upliftment as people requires that we really see our identities as, as political and that the personal is political. And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the statements that Audre Lorde made, right? Uh, you know, um, you know, her discussion about silence and you know the the relationship between silence and 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 death and silence and visibility, right? Um, I think are things that that I think a lot of black gay men owe that to a lot of the women uh, that were writing June Jordan and Pat Parker and, mm-hmm. and Audre Lorde and you know um, Nikki Giovanni and Nikki Finney, who's <laughs> who's who's mm-hmm. writing so many. So many voices uh, there. I you think know, I've also I've also been somewhat course, troubled, you know, as someone who mm-hmm. did come out with a lot of women. Uh, uh, sometimes the divisions that we see on, along lines of gender, I've never been very oriented specifically just around uh, men's culture, and so I've always made very deliberate attempts to. Uh, one of the things I love about Cincy being back here is that it's it's a small enough community that when you go places, the women are there, the men are there, the trans, uh, 
uh, transgender communities represented. Everybody's kind of in one space. Um, and I think in the, your larger cities like Chicago and Atlanta, uh, one of the things that can happen is, you know, things get very siloed on gender, uh, on mm-hmm. long lines of gender. And uh, it feels good to be back in a place where, you know, me and my girlfriends can go to the same space and hang out and everybody's represented. You know, one of the things that you talk about poetry, which I think, too, is like with poetry, like your words, mm-hmm. they can have your meaning but also have a meaning for someone else. It sort of touches mm-hmm. someone else. And do you find that even though, I mean, when you're expressing it, in, as particularly in these spaces that you have, which, you know, I know now I have to come down to Cincinnati to go to one of these places with you because – I find that, you know, like it's sort of like, okay, well, either you're with all the women or if you're a woman, you go into the men. But when you do poetry, sometimes there's an emotion, a sentiment. It takes a word and like blows it out the box. It it gets rid of all the boundaries to where you could be in that space and I would hear it and get it. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Do you, when you, when you transition, when you're doing that, where sometimes, like, I think that hip-hop, some hip-hop is a form of poetry, too, but sometimes it isn't, it doesn't have that expansiveness of each word. How do you transition from one to the other? And you do it smoothly, because I've seen you do both. But mm-hmm. how do you, do you make that transition? Uh, is it, is it, based on, like, who the audience is or, or to get that meaning out, what you're really trying to say, and how do you choose? Right. Are you going to express this through poetry or through hip-hop? What was really interesting about, uh, the, you know, my, my old website, which used to be reddirt.biz, and I think a lot of people probably even remember that, was rooted mm-hmm. in the fact that I had done two parallel projects. My first book, which was um, Red Dirt Revival, a poetic memoir in six breaths, and a hip-hop music project that was called Songs for Red Dirt, which was my first solo album. What a lot of people don't know is that several of the songs were actually poems Mm. that I actually brought rhythm to and a cadence Two that allowed me to convert them into songs, which is why to your earlier question of like, how do I see myself first? And I'm a mm-hmm. writer first, in particular a poet mm. first, and I think sometimes that poetry will manifest as a song, sometimes hip-hop, sometimes spoken word. And, and there are also pieces, and I, I tell a lot of the young poets this, there are pieces that I have never presented as a spoken word piece because I, in some ways I feel like it will do a violence to the beauty of that piece on the page. You know that there's there's a um, there's a real specificity to language, and it's not going to get tens in a slam, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's not the exciting like rouse your attention, motivate you, draw your emotion kind of thing. It's it's a line that you read in a book that makes you just stop, and you're just like, damn, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like that line, like I can't even go further because this line just got me, right? Um, and I think that that's, you know, you're right. Like, how do I delineate? And I think for me, it's like, if I put this behind the beat and I'm jumping up and down and singing to it, are people going to get that impact that mm-hmm. I want them to get, right, that can persist in a certain way on the page? 
Um, and so I think you're right. Like there, you know, if there's writing as a the foundation. There's poetry uh, that I love. And I, quite honestly, I would even say, um, in my mind, like some of my best spoken word pieces are like not my favorite poems, you know, because I think that there's something that gets lost, that there's a way that the performance kind of sometimes outshines the lyricism and the beauty of the way the words dance on page, the nuanced meaning. If I'm speaking and I'm saying there, you don't know if it's T-H-E-I-R, T-H-E-R-E, right? And there's a way that I can play with words on the page. Mm-hmm that once you see it, like, oh, wow, like he was actually, you know, there's a homonym there, and he's using a, that word in a different way, right? If I say, like, you know, can something hold my weight, right? But what if I'm spelling it W-A-I-T? Mm-hmm. It's a very different thing than W-E-I-G-H-T. But if I'm speaking it, you don't know that, right? So I, mm-hmm. I think... I think just really being nuanced, and I really encourage a lot of writers to think about um, having multiple spaces where their work could sit, right? Like not everything is has to be spoken on a stage uh, with the mic, not everything. I think there's, there's also a culture in which, like, if you don't memorize your poems and slam them, that they're not powerful. And I'm not, I'm not one who believes that. I believe that, like, some words are not intended for that 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 space and that there are other pieces that are and that there are other pieces that can be morphed into um, to music or hip-hop or songwriting. And I'm just happy that I'm able to express across all of those platforms. And I think uh, additionally that I'm able to talk about my work in academic spaces where people are grappling with like, okay, there's there's the poetry, there's the hip-hop, but then how are you making meaning of those pieces in especially the particular climate that we're in today, right? And just, I mean, there's a really unique moment right now, I think, in our history. Um, and I think, uh, you know, to speak truth to power in these times is as important as ever. You know, I, I like how, especially that example, how you use the word wait and wait, because sometimes... It's like that. I was talking to someone on tonight, and we were saying, like, well, you know, I wrote this one piece, and then when I thought about it, it said something else to me. And it was really funny because I had been sitting listening to an elder, and, and people were sort of, she was trying to tell the kids, like, to quit fussing over her. And we were getting ready to go out in the cold, and um, she said, they said, oh, you got to put on this. And she said, well, I've got on three layers and a brassiere. That'll keep me warm. And I listened to that, and I heard how they weren't hearing her. And to be able to talk about what she was talking about, but then to take that same concept and think about as a, a woman, like the three layers of your life that you can, you go through, and then and the, the development of your body and how it, like, both empowers but sometimes makes you a victim. So it's like you're saying how you can write something and it can take on one way, like wait, and then mm-hmm. wait. And when you said it the second time, like W-A-I-T, wait, it was like I heard it and it made you want to just sort of sigh and think mm-hmm. about that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what does it mean yeah. to hold weight? What does it mean to hold yeah, yeah. That, that it just it just uh-huh. it is. It's a really interesting way to think about longing, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and fundamentally, I think a lot of my work is really rooted in the personal, right? Uh, you know, the Audre Lorde talked about the personal and being political. Uh, and uh, that poetry, would, and, and actually eroticism, which is really interesting, I think something I've struggled with over and again, is like, you know, even even the ability, the courage to talk about our erotic and, and, and intimate lives, the way that that speaks truth to power about broader topics right so it's not it's not it's not isolated um mm-hmm. and and i think that there's um yeah there is something about that right to that when you say black men loving black men is a revolutionary act which was was uh, something that was aligned in tongues untied marlon riggs and essex Hempel, but like you know that 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 there's an eroticism to that, but it's not necessarily sexual, right? Like, uh, and I think thinking about the intimacy in our lives and our our daring to love each other, to love ourselves, uh, can be truly, truly revolutionary and truly powerful. And I think it's in particular between black men in a climate where um, that love for each other is often seen as taboo, um, mm. which is which is why I think Moonlight was such a powerful. Yeah, uh, you know, I was talking with someone about that movie, and I was like, you know, I, you know, I, I imagine that they could have done a coming of age story and had a, a black heterosexual protagonist, but it just would not have been as revolutionary, I think, because I think the one the one place you're not supposed to go, right, uh, that there's supposed to be limitations on how intimate and close you can be with the, a male, mm-hmm. and I think. The, the peak of that, or the the real taboo, is like, oh, well, you can you can have a close friend, but like, oh, like you know, you still can't be gay. Like that's that's really bad. So I'm I'm really glad that the the film really challenged that um, and really forced people. And I still talk to people all the time that still haven't seen it. You know, in particular, a lot of my heterosexual friends that call themselves allies, and I ask themselves like, like, what's 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 your reticence? This film has been out. I said, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you look at all of the praise that um, that that a Black Panther got for being like black directed, black actors, it's like this phenomenal cast, and then you look at something like Moonlight, it's like, well, it was Best Picture. <laughs> like, I mean, it wasn't like a bootleg sideline film, but this was definitely something that was like celebrated really widely. And you talk to people who haven't seen it, and it's like, well, what's what's the what's the reluctance? What's the? And I actually had a friend of mine. She said, uh, well, I just I was I heard it was a gay movie, and I was like, okay, like as if that would have been a problem for someone who calls themselves an ally. Why, why has that stopped you from seeing it? Uh, and then saw it and was like, oh, it's not what I thought. Well, what did you think? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it, I think for me it just really spoke to, uh, I think we've made progress, but I think there's a lot of just underlying homophobia and heterosexism that we have to challenge in, in black communities and um yeah, and I think in, in particular, I, mean, I think you being in Detroit, I mean, I, and I don't know, I've always seen Detroit as like one of the more out spaces <laughs> in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because like it, it was the first place I saw black people march in the streets during Pride. And I was like, hold on, mm-hmm. there's an actual march. <laughs> and they're they in a black neighborhood. <laughs> and people are coming out on the porch and waving at folks. Like, <laughs> It was um, that was powerful for me because I think oftentimes uh, the way that pride gets scripted is through this lens of, of you know LGBT white dominant culture, 
uh, and and I think to, for us to see ourselves celebrated in in our diversity and all the ways we show up in our communities is 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 so powerful for me and something that I've been long committed to through my poetry um, and 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 through my music. I think those have been vehicles to really share aspects of my experience with the wider public. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And if you're just joining us, I am talking to a multifaceted individual who truly stands in the crosshairs of his intersectionality, Tim M. West. We'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on collections by Michelle Brown. Tim, you know, one of the things that you, which you, I was thinking about, you know, with Moonlight, and like you said, I have friends who are allies, and like you said, they say, oh, well, you know, it's a gay movie, you know, <laughs> and the one or two who I have challenged and have gone and seen it, then afterwards changed their, their mind. You know, they talked about it differently, but it was almost like in saying, it was a gay movie. They were expecting it to be all about sex. I mean, and the same things like, do you find as a poet that sometimes when they, I mean, when they introduce you as, or have you been invited somewhere, somewhere and, you know, oh, he's a black poet and he, you're openly gay and you're talking about all these issues that, you know, that you have to, you find that, that sort of barrier going up like, oh, what's he going to talk about, you know? He's not going to go there, and that people are, ex- or the other side is that people are you expecting you to talk about only our sex lives? Yeah, it's interesting that people like that's the default is to think about first and foremost sex, uh, and I say you know when when I discover or find out that people are heterosexual, my mind doesn't immediately go to them having sex. Uh, mm-hmm. And if it did, that would make me the pervert, not them. <laughs> well, I always think that's really interesting that, like, if that's your default, if you are so terrified by the imagination of sex, uh, like, what is that saying about you as a person who's thinking that? Because, like, when I find out people are straight, I, I just, I think primarily about the relationship to each other and mm-hmm. all the other aspects and components that go into that relationship. And that's not the shame sex. I think I'm a very sex-positive person. Um, but I, I will say this. I was very happy at the end of Moonlight uh, that it ended the way that it did. Um, there was a part of me that was really... Uh, I was like, okay, please don't let them do more than just, like, <laughs> have this amazing, 
warm, powerful, compassionate embrace. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I remember a relative saying, like, you know, Tim, I never really thought about intimacy. And she was like, if you if you saw the scene in the in the cafe, uh, mm-hmm. and the flirtation and the dance and the and the excitement and the energy and the nervousness, she was just like, if you can't relate to that on a on a basic human level, like that there's something very human about that experience, even if mm-hmm. I'm not. Uh, uh, you know, a same-sex loving person that I un- I could empathize with what that must have been like to reconnect with this person after all this time. Um, and I think that that's, that, to me, that was one of the more beautiful things about the film is that it really forced people to to tr- to try to see the humanity in, in you know, same-sex um, relationships, desires, affections, and that like affection and intimacy uh, is a part of what we do, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that the, the film in, in a really powerful way celebrated that. Um, so, okay, do you ever have when you started when you find hip hop? You know, do you find is that a way that you connect? with youth is that often like the gateway when because you've done a lot of work with youth, but has that sometimes been that gateway so you aren't like who's this dude coming in here talking about poetry right um i I do think i think especially because of the relationships and this ties to the education uh you know i think you and i probably both came up in schools where art and music education were and, and visual art were central to our education uh, and seeing the seeing how a lot of those programs have been taken out of schools mm-hmm. um, I think it's kind of led to a space where there isn't always the appreciation for let's say poetry or our our music and so I think what where hip-hop uh, kind of fits that need is, and I think a lot of people in education are thinking very critically about, like, how can they integrate, in particular, black and brown communities, like, what kids are listening to and thinking about in terms of their music into a form where you can get certain messages across. And I think as as an educator and a curriculum developer, uh, that's something I think very carefully about. It's like, okay, um, you know, if I need to reach them, you know, I may not be able to do so with with just a poem. And and there, I think there's a, even a, a relationship and a connection to literacy. A lot of poetry is presented, especially if you're presenting white canonical poets. poets right? Kids are looking at it like, okay, like what's what's this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this doesn't relate to my experience. And I think what hip hop does, and what lyricism do, uh, what does is it, it it creates a space where, okay, this is our poetry. Talk about our experiences. And I think a lot of young people are able to relate to that. And I think if presented the right way, I think hip-hop can be a beautiful bridge into an appreciation for poetry. Um, I'm happy to say that a lot of my own lyrics can stand on the page as well as on the mic, right? So that if you literally publish the lyrics that I've written to a hip-hop song, um, you know, a lot of it can it can stand as poetry in a lot of senses. Now, not everyone 
writes in that way. Like, not all rap is poetry. I, I definitely don't agree with that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in particular, mm-hmm. in our in our trap field uh, <laughs> uh, world today, where you can actually like repeat, you know, a line fifty times and it be a I song. Know. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's nothing poetic necessarily about that. So, right, I think we do need to hold some kind of standard. And that's not to say that music shouldn't exist. It's just not poetry. Um, but I think if you look at some of the earlier hip-hop artists, that's, that's what they were doing. They were very intentional about this is the storytelling. We are the griots of our day telling the stories about our experiences. Um and actually, some of the collaborative work that I'm doing now in hip-hop, I think what a lot of people appreciate about my work is, one, I'm kind of a golden era hip-hop-influenced hip-hop artist. Uh, and so for people that don't hear enough of that today, uh, you know, my music resonates for them. It's, you know, it's soulful. They're, they're hooks. I do singing and rapping. And it's kind of like, oh, like, this is feel-good hip-hop. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to a younger person the other day here in Cincinnati, and he was like, you know, he said, I like trap, but he said, listening to trap gets me, like, ready to battle. He's like, just the, the, the cadence of the music, the rhythm of the music, the energy, is it's it's a kind of turn up, but sometimes in an aggressive mm-hmm. way. And he, he talked about how sometimes he needs that armor going into, you know, white dominant culture in the world and, and just sort of experiencing that and just being prepared for all that he might experience as a black man. Um, but he also said that, like, you know, if that's all you listen to, then, like, how are you preparing yourself when you in, are in company with your own people, right? Uh, are you also taking that same armor defensive energy into spaces that could be about, you know, love and, and about supporting each other? And, and and this is a younger person that's more aligned with trap, and he was like, you know, I, mm-hmm. I began to diversify what I listen to because I want to diversify how I respond in situations to other people, and I don't want to have that energy when I'm meeting with my brothers. And I thought that was that was a really powerful um, statement to hear from a young person who I thought would be very critical or just sort of like would not be critical at all about uh, about trap music and trap culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's interesting that, that, that he gets that. And, you know, because when you talk about literacy, you know, traditionally they've always talked about it like to be able to read and write. I mean, you know, and not our reading and writing because we know that, you know, back in slavery we had a way of communicating with each other, which was literacy. We were able to, to tell stories, to talk about, you know, using images and to understand and communicate and, and to gain knowledge. And in some ways, as you go into hip-hop, not the trap, but a lot of, especially the older hip-hop, it was our means of telling about our conditions, about our lives, what we were seeing. And there are certain things, like you said, in, in certain parts of hip-hop, that when you're talking about people get it, like, yeah, that's my neighborhood, that's what I'm, 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 I'm seeing. But... I imagine that there are some people that you could expand upon that, how hearing the trap made it feel like, you know, getting ready to go into battle and to war, but then to talk about why do you feel that going into battle and war and what's this world like, which to me would then possibly lead you back to a form of poetry or storytelling or, you know, like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, again, it's, um, I'm also thinking about, like, just women, women's emergence mm-hmm. in hip-hop. Uh, I I was particularly fond of the voice that women had in hip-hop as a insertion and interrogation of just a singular narrative around men's experiences. Um, and I also felt like by the assertion of women in hip-hop, there was potentially a space for queer voices to someday have uh, a role, which is, you know, why the emergence of DDC came about, because it was kind of like there were all these articles about, like, oh, like, you know, gay and rap are, like, antithetical to each other, and, like, there's no space for gays in the rap game. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, we're in communities, too. We grew up just like everybody mm-hmm. else. Like, why wouldn't we have a voice, Right. And I think we wanted to really assert, um, we really wanted to assert, you know, our presence uh, and, 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 and ensure that people knew that we are storytelling as well. What's really been interesting about that, I was talking to a, a graduate class at University of Maryland about, um, and, and looking at a film like Pick Up the Mic years later, um, you know, how so much of it's it's kind of like when you're watching a film and it's it's home space, right? So you're watching a film, uh, and it's in the company of your people, and there's a way that mm-hmm. you can process and see that film that allows you to laugh about certain things and, and be light about certain things and really enjoy the experience and not be super hypercritical. And then you imagine, what if I'm watching that same film and I'm the uh, one of two black people here, and the people that are watching it don't have the proximity or the relationships to our community to know that that's not all we are, right? Uh, it's almost like you can see, like, <laughs> you can see it in two different ways, and the context completely changes, right? Um, you know, there's a way that I can laugh about certain black comedy um, mm-hmm. that I become very uncomfortable when I'm thinking about, like, who else is digesting this, and this is not just us to hear, Right. Um, and and how are other bodies and other identities processing that, which is why I think it's been so important. I think, you know, even my leadership with, like, Black Alphabet Film Festival and a few other mm-hmm. things that I'm involved in is really about, you know, and I tell people all the time, well, I, I don't like this certain narrative because it didn't represent, I'm like, we can't expect every black LGBT film to represent every identity, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, part of it is that, like, where's where's the call to action to create the stories we want to see more of, right? If I see something that I don't feel adequately represents my story or my experience, that has been at the heart of a lot of my writing, a lot of my poetry, a lot of my hip-hop is about there are countless stories that have never been told creatively. And so, you know, how can we use our voices creatively and artistically to ensure those stories do get told? Now, you do a lot with, with youth, and we're just talking about storytelling, but often we aren't really encouraging young people to tell their stories because, you know, sometimes you'll hear, like, panels and they have different generations, and they seem to, like, shut out youth, not recognizing that, you know, we say it gets better, but it hasn't, but what they're dealing with is the same as what a couple generations ago went through, but the surroundings, the circumstances are different. How do you, in all your work, are you able to encourage youth to tell their stories? And do you find yourself sometimes in what you're doing when you're, just like how you said, how often you were trying to see 
you know, when people are saying, well, that's not my narrative, and, and a lot of your writing has been driven by telling your narrative, that you're then able to go to these organizations these, um, that you work with and say, okay, we need to give young people that voice. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is just like it's, it's, you know, my story is going to appeal to some people. Um, I try to write in a way that includes people that don't share my specific identity, but I also try to encourage other people to tell their stories. And I think that, like, there's room for us all, right? That false choice of that like, we have to make decisions about whether to represent. I've been having this conversation a lot with regard to. Uh, interestingly, it's lately it's been about black femme women's experiences. Mm-hmm. Which has been a really interesting conversation about the invisibility of the black femme um, and how uh, masculine of center lesbian perspectives tend are you know are trans men tend to be the dominant narrative and I was thinking about in what ways does that also reflect the sort of patriarchal bias, right, that we pay attention more to what's going on. We talk about the crisis for black boys in a way that we don't talk about a crisis for black girls when both are experiencing crisis. And is that is that sort of reflective of a, of a sexist or patriarchal bias in terms of what gets to get, what gets to matter for black people, right? Like if mm-hmm. we get the way that like black lives are amplified when black men are 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 killed in a way that's very different than a black woman or a trans gender person um you know there, there's some truth to that right so so my thing is like like i can't I can't represent it all, but what can I do to enable what in my story makes you want to tell your story and I think that that to me is that's good writing. Like, mm-hmm. the best writing I read makes me want to write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's how, mm-hmm. like, when I, when I read something and I'm just like, oh, like, that just brought something out of me that I was not able to, you know, um, articulate before. And then sometimes it's, sometimes it's not that. Sometimes what I hear is that, wow, like, you actually spoke the words I couldn't, right? Like, you somehow... Uh, like, I don't know if you've ever read a piece and you felt like, wow, like, I could have written that myself. Like, uh, yeah. every word of it was exactly mm-hmm. something that I was feeling, but I wasn't quite able to express that. And one of the ways it shows up with me, one of the things I think is really beautiful and brilliant about social media, uh, you know, for all that it doesn't do, I love the uh, when they tell you, like, a year ago you said this or two years ago. And what's always been interesting for me is, like, even things that friends of mine like that I wrote, they will repost. And there was something that I wrote even, like, maybe five years ago, and it got reposted. And it was almost like I was looking at it from with different eyes, like I hadn't written it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that goes to your point earlier, like, as, as time passes, as your context changes, as, as life experiences happen – you know, I don't think you always quite get every layer of meaning that is in something you say. Uh, it is largely dependent on what's happening in your life right then and there at that moment. Um, and so um, I think that's just, that. to me, that's one of the most amazing aspects of 
writing is that you can take something and then read it when you're going through a different life experience and it hits you in a way it didn't before you know um it's songs are that way too right like oh i didn't mm-hmm. really think that much about this song and then i you know i had a loss in my life or i fell in love again and then all of a sudden this word this song i knew really well i didn't really hear that in it before <laughs> mm-hmm. and i think that's the beauty of writing is that it's not just what the person wrote or what even what they intended i think for me i have a lot of humility around what i write because i feel like all I do is provide a um, a pathway for a person to internalize what I wrote and to make meaning based on their experience. So in that way, every poem is co-written, right? Every mm-hmm. everything written is a co-writing experience because it's not only you know it. I could write a whole ten-page paper on it, exactly what I meant when I was you know. But who wants to read that? Like, I think mm-hmm. it's. <laughs> uh, I remember Seal, um, the the singer, talking about why he didn't publish lyrics um, on one of his previous albums, and he said like, you know, if if my words, if my lyrics say this. But you took the same words, and you know how you hear certain things. Even like I even think about this with like jingles and uh, the words of Sesame Street. I had all kind of things in, <laughs> in the Sesame Street theme and the Golden Girls song. I was singing wrong stuff, but I mm-hmm. was making the meaning that I needed, <laughs> you know, for myself. <laughs> And uh, it's almost like you're almost disappointed when you find out you've been singing it wrong. <laughs> like, I know, you're looking at the time, All this time well, I thought you were saying this. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, um, I've had somebody, and then, and then they're like, no, it is. I said, no, look, I finally looked up the lyrics. No, we're singing it wrong. <laughs> oh, you know, I think that you, you, we all have the capacity to be an educator, and I think that you do that a lot. But, um, you know, and and I know I read initially about your your academic background and the things you've gone on to do, but I was looking at your website, and I'll tell you mm-hmm. something that I found really really profound that you say there. And I'm going to tell you, if you say that you believe that we rob society from its best, most courageous, and brilliant teachers when we suggest that LGBTQ educators are fine just as long as they don't talk about it and just do their job. And I know a group of, I mean, and many of them now are like in their 80s and stuff who are LGBTQ educators. And they had almost like a secret society. Mm-hmm. You know, I met two women who, like, they lived in a two-family flat. So one used the upstairs address and the other one used the downstairs address. So people didn't know that they were a couple. And I've seen one who came into the club and a lot of people who are young, you know, who are my contemporaries, one of them went up to to this one and she said, you know what, I remember you. And how much it meant that when they went out in the club, they saw them in the club. But then when they went back to school that Monday, nobody said anything. You know, like they didn't identify that, but knowing that that person was out there, how important it was, but at the same time, they, it, it helped all of them, that message that, well, you can have this life, but when you're in mainstream things, you've got to be in the closet. And I listened to these, these men and women who were educators, but
but who lived such a closeted life. And by that one interaction, if they had been able to be their full selves and not doing it, you imagine how impactful it is. You know, and to have people who are even now who are like, well, you know, we were thinking about going into teaching, but, you know, the way things are, I wouldn't want someone mm-hmm. to come in mm-hmm. and, and out me or do that. But you're right. We rob society from some of its best and most courageous and brilliant teachers, you know, when we tell them, well, just don't talk about it. Absolutely. And I think, I think the, the, one of the reasons or one of the ways that we most rob of our most brilliant educators is because we send an implicit message to the students we're serving that that identity is something to be shamed and shameful mm-hmm. of, right? So we talk about mirrors and windows and the fact that, you know, we can, we, it's easy for us to admit when we're talking about black kids solely that it is important, and we've seen statistical data and evidence that, like, black teachers are often more effective in classroom with black students, that there's, there's a relationship between what you learn and seeing yourself reflected in certain ways in your learning. And that's not to say that there aren't remarkable white educators doing some great things with black kids at all, but it is to say that remarkable black educators offer something beyond the content that is really affirming to a black kid. But, like, why wouldn't we assume that the same is true for LGBT kids? Right, I saw firsthand, and I think the full circle story of my experience, having gone to high school in Southwest Arkansas, in a small town, uh, having an early awareness of my orientation, but you know, having the the masculinity and the presence to kind of you know shake away some of those suspicions, like no one ever assumed or thought, um, and so you know, it kind of hit a boiling point, and I remember in particular. Uh, there was a teacher at my school, uh, and there was a, a show about HIV/AIDS, and uh, and this was a health class in the late '80s. And we know what the the story, the narrative about AIDS was in the '80s, late '80s mm-hmm. in particular. Uh, and they the, the film happened to show like gay men holding hands, and I remember the teacher turning around and making a like puke puking motion, like mm. oh I think I'm gonna get sick. Uh, and I think I thought the teacher, I thought I liked the teacher before that point. But I remember she couldn't tell me anything after that. Like, I, 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 I just remember she lost all my trust. Um, and it was, and that's very common, that right? A lot of LGBT students report that the most damaging things they hear in their schools about LGBT folks is coming from administrators and and, and teachers. Um, And so I think the power, and I think, you know, I remember it was after hearing that and having a trusted, someone you trusted as an adult, basically, maybe not knowingly, tell you that you were sick or that you were worth being sick about because of your attraction. Um, You know, I know that those things cumulatively led to my suicidal ideation and attempt. Uh, and at 14, it didn't, it didn't work, and I think that incident made me committed to being what I did not have, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be in a school? And in many schools where I taught, I was the only out teacher. Um, but the power of, you know, young black men and young women and kids of all colors seeing that one of the more intelligent, respectable, honorable, decent, loving human beings that they knew was a gay man. Uh, I absolutely know that 
their exposure to that forever shifted their humanity and how they think about the world, how they think about their own kids. I actually had a young student that I um, um, taught, you know, oh, goodness, how many years ago? Probably more than 15 years ago. And he sent me a message that, you know what, like, you know, I just had a son, and I've been thinking a lot about, like, whether what I would do if I found out my, my child was gay. And he was like, you know, I would absolutely love and support my child. And he mm-hmm. says, I don't know that I would have had that way of thinking if I hadn't had you as a teacher, you know, because he's like, you know, saying that somebody's gay isn't an insult to me anymore because one of the strongest and most amazing men that he knows is, is a gay man. Um, and, and the power that that can have to have that identity reflected. Now, and this is a straight, the heterosexual, right? Um, but then also for the, for the gay black men, that said, you know what, I, I didn't contemplate suicide because I had somebody I could look up to to say, like, I, I can try to be amazing like this. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, not that I saw myself as amazing at the time. I think it's, I remember when I first met Marlon Riggs, when I saw my first screening of Tongues Untied, and I was just in awe and, like, buckeyed, and, oh, my God, I'm shaking his hand, and he was looking at me like, hey, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting when I'm at an airport or, or somewhere and a, and a young man or person walks up and goes, oh, like, you know, I read your book or I, I saw you do this performance and the impact that has. And there's a part of me that wants to be really understated, like, oh, that's nothing. But I realized, I, I remember who I was as a kid that was looking up for models and wanting to see myself reflected and just the power of that. So I do think our schools have a responsibility to reflect the diversity of our students. Um, And I think that they have to be intentional about that, you know, making sure. Because if you're in an entire school and, and you can't identify one person who's LGBT, what is that saying about your identity? that it's something that has to be hidden, that it's something that should be ashamed and not something that you should be proud of. And I think that that's hugely, hugely problematic. Um, now, you know, I know that you're, you now are with Teach for America. And back long before I, I knew what you were doing, when I heard, I had friends who were, you know, talking about teaching and it was sort of like, oh, well, Teach for America, I could do that. But, you know, it was like, yeah, it it wasn't like the high end of what they wanted to do. But it was mm-hmm. like, well, I could do that, and they'll probably send me to someplace I don't want to go, you know. But <laughs> it's like, and, and that, that, but not that uh, the people who did go were about education, about service, about doing for young people. And, um, and in these communities, and you are leading the National LGBT Community Initiative, which I see in two ways because we know that there are gay people, gay youth all over the place. And if you don't address it and if teachers aren't aware of it and find ways to, like you said, don't even do that nonverbal thing, you know, you need to check your, check your, your, your phobias at the door, that, you know, it continues to add to that problem. How did you decide to go and join Teach for America? And what exactly does the program that you're leading entail? So it's interesting. I didn't know a lot about Teach for America when I when I joined. All I knew was that I was working in Chicago with youth, LGBT youth. I knew that 
as a youth center director, a lot of them were coming to my after-school programs um, traumatized by the experiences they were having in schools. Uh, and keep in mind, Chicago is a, is a, is a school and is a, is a district with a lot of really progressive policies around LGBT, right? Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of our kids don't know what those policies are. A lot of their parents don't know what those policies are. And so it's not so much that they're not protected. They just don't, they don't know that they actually can stand up for themselves and the, the policies and the laws will have their backs. But they would come, and I was able in our program to provide the kind of programming and support, direct and group, that, that, that helped them mitigate those awful experiences that they were having uh, in schools, particularly on the south and west sides. Um, but I think there's a larger issue here. Like, right, and I can put a Band-Aid over this young man's wound that might heal in a few days before the next wound happens, or I can begin to think, like, what could it mean to actually be in a place where I have the impact to really systemically and institutionally change the way that we see these issues? Uh, I had gone to a United Way conference. Um, actually, so it was that... I, the, the TFA announcement came out that they were starting an LGBT initiative. So TFA has not been doing this work for a long time, and it's one of the few education institutions that has devoted some energy and resources to uh, having someone think about, like, you know, we have 60,000 alumni out there that have gone through Teach for America. What could it mean to begin to orient and build awareness of these issues so that those teachers who are now principals or vice principals or working for United Way and working for other kinds of institutions are actually bringing a more inclusive and affirming mindset into the work that they do? Um, and I saw the impact of that, right, to have that connection to such a, a broad network. Now, what I didn't know, I didn't know TFA was as controversial as I found that it is, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I appreciate those critiques of TFA. I've always said, like, I didn't do TFA as a core member. I taught through other kinds of means, and so I wasn't aware of some of the critiques uh, that, that exist in a lot of our cities around TFA. I did know that their commitment to this body of work was something no one else was really doing, uh, and I appreciated that. And I'm a good listener. I wanted to hear the critiques of Teach for America and to work as someone on the inside of their networks to try to really, like, say, you know what, I hear a lot of times that Teach for America doesn't play too well with other people, like that they're kind of like, you know, we're the smart people that got everything figured out. So I'm like, well, actually, you don't, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't do Teach for America, and I'm bringing a lot of interesting innovation and ideas to the platform. And imagine if you started listening to other people more. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so the way that I lead my work is very collaboratively. I, I want to talk to people who are our critics. I want to talk to people who have been critical of our work, because I think that's how you get better, right? You don't get better by siloing yourself off and, and only talking to people that already agree with you. Uh, and so that's been that's been a gift, but I think just the ability to hold 
uh, LGBT education summits where we have over 500 people, educators a year, come through and learn about how to turn a homophobic moment into a teachable moment, um, you know, navigating whether to be out or not in the classroom. So looking at policies like anti-bullying policies uh, or even employment discrimination policies that prevent teachers from even being out uh, in schools and how do we still commit uh despite some of the challenges. I think, you know, some of our LGBT educators are, are the most committed to to their kids and communities. And I say this because I, I know what it can be like to recloset yourself, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just because you, you care about your kids. Uh, I've been told in, in education settings, don't don't bring that to here. You know, don't don't come out. You better not. And I've been in the state where they could have legally fired me if I did. Um, but I was first and foremost committed to the kids, and I did the best I could. I was I, Look, I may not have been out in that space, but I was the most affirming ally they probably could have even imagined. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was my responsibility as a teacher, and I'm glad that I led in that way. And so I just think... Uh, we are seeing systemic change. You know, we have had setbacks under the current administration. I'm not going to even sit and pretend that that's not the case. You know, I think we were on a trajectory, uh, and a lot of changes were happening, in particular uh, the Obama administration guidance around transgender youth uh, and being inclusive and providing them spaces, and then the rollback of that uh, and, the, and the introduction and the, the re-energized you know, uh, religious freedom acts that basically say, like, if I believe a certain thing that I don't have to, I can be discriminatory because it's my religion. Uh, Really dangerous, slippery slope there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, very dangerous. And and not just for LGBT people, right? Like, I mean, it has all sorts of implications I think a lot of people haven't thought about. Um, But I think it's You know, it's in times like this that the work becomes really amplified and elevated, and we have to be all the more diligent in making sure that we are, are, you know, mobilizing, making sure that we are aware of what's happening for the sake of our kids as well as for for our sake. Because, you know, I mean, I think that's why, and I I think certain nations, but this weekend, the marches, I mean, it was one of the most emotional um, kind of just experiences I had, and I didn't go, but just watching mm-hmm. the young people speak um, their truth and seeing them mobilize, it was just, it was beautiful. And I found, in the current climate, I found myself so hopeful. And I found myself very much feeling like, you know what, we, we're going to be okay because mm-hmm. these kids ain't playing. <laughs> well, well, don't, well, you know, how you said that part of your program is about advancing safer and braver classrooms. And isn't it by advancing safer and braver classrooms, mm-hmm. not only for LGBTQ students, but for students, it's where they can have that voice mm-hmm. to where you see what transpired this weekend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think mm-hmm. all of that has been... In, I think in the in small ways, teachers, many of whom have been influenced by by educators like myself, who come to different conferences and who are thinking about these issues, are creating spaces where young people, you know, are are being elevated and, and have a voice to think. I mean, I, I thought I thought about it. I don't remember the, the young man's name uh, that was leading the, you know, um, 
white white kid and, mm-hmm. and how he talked about how the voices of uh, black students were not amplified. And he said that was one of the biggest, you know, regrets of the way that things were being presented. And then to create space on the national platform for those voices to be heard, um, I thought was really powerful. And it's not a way that, you know, I, I honestly say I don't think it's a way that, like, you know, his forefathers <laughs> operated mm-hmm. in terms of, like, let's mm-hmm. create, let's let's take our privilege and create space to, to, for other people to to to, ha- to have their voices heard, um, and so that 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 was also just really powerful for me to see the potential. I was at a poetry slam um, where I, I performed in here in Cincy, and just the number of <laughs> this is a little awkward for me. I was like, oh wow, like these these uh, presumably <laughs> straight white girls talking about trans women of colors and murders and, and mm-hmm. how, like, those voices need to be. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, wow, okay, something different is going on with this generation. Uh, <laughs> uh, definitely... And their ability to see beyond their own identities and to really, uh, and that's not everybody, but I think somebody, somebody's doing the right things in schools in terms of really exposing um, a lot of young people to a lot of the fallacies and fictions that we've been been told and um you know i think i think the energy around black panther was a reflection of that uh just a, a great sense of pride in who we are and our people i think that um you know even as you know uh you know, murders are still happening to black unarmed men you know people are speaking up about it right um mm-hmm. i think what would be more frightening would be the silence around it so you know it, as you hear about protest and and people that are uh, are speaking speaking out it's it's just a sign that like hey like you know we are not going to just sit here silently and allow things to happen and that that's a sense of of pride that we have and that's something i try to reflect you know in in my writing as a poet and my my music uh, and in my leadership as an educator and and i'm often in spaces where i you know i the decisions that get made do not necessarily reflect my personal perspectives uh, I think as I've gotten older, I've had to learn how to be more diplomatic. Um, <laughs> and there might be people that say, oh, I don't push hard enough, you know. But part of it is like I know, you know, sometimes having a seat at the table comes with certain compromises. Uh, and that, that's something that I think I also try to teach our young people. You can't, if you are going to wait to get everything exactly the way you want it, uh, you may be waiting for a pretty long time, right? And I, I think mm-hmm. about some of our, some of the adjustments and the, the, you know, even thinking about like generations of the teachers that you talked about who had to go through all sorts of contortions so that people wouldn't know that they were gay. Um, but, you know, they survived through that. And I, there's a way I could look at that and look down on them for not being themselves. <laughs> and there's another way I can look at them and say, wow, like, thank you. You know, because that could not have been easy, right? It could not have been easy to to deny the person you most love is an actual, you know, partner in your life, and y'all got to pretend to be best friends or you know, you know, cousins or whatever else. <laughs> uh-huh. all, all the things that that people mm-hmm. in, you know, in generations before had to do, and I think that there is, um, you know, in 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 the way that I speak my truth and the way that I show up and present, that's what really propels me to to be out. Is because you know, I'm doing so because I get to, and some people didn't really have that option in a real way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking with my daughter about um, 
she's writing about Lorraine Hansberry and, and doing some theatrical writing and some screenwriting and uh, playwriting about it, and uh, was talking about like how many how many couples we presume were heterosexual that probably were not, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And it's because they didn't. That was what you did. You got married, right? But that does not say anything about what their true sexual uh, orientation or desire was. And I think we're finding out <laughs> more mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, more and more about that. So. Well, we're going to take our, our second quick break here, and we'll be right back with Tim M. West uh, here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. Or Tim M. West. Tim, you know, I appreciate talking to you. You know, the brave educator. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I love your 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 website, Brave Educator. I mean, I think that you have shown, you know, through all you know, there's a thread that you're able to weave through everything and you're doing it in different ways but the same. What's coming in the future for you? And if what can people want to get your books? to book you, to find out more about Teach for America, or just to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yes, yeah, so absolutely. My, my website is a great portal. Uh, I created it because with Red Dirt Biz, I was mostly talking about my books or my music, and I felt like there were ways that people really undermined my overarching leadership in education spaces and in other spaces. And so I wanted a more comprehensive site. And so uh, braveeducator.com is the website. Uh, my email is t.west at braveeducator.com. Um, you know, and on that site, it kind of breaks down the music and the, the poetry. There's stuff that talks more about my my leadership in education, uh, and then uh, and as an activist, and then uh, there's also stuff that deals with sort of youth advocacy work. So it's a pretty comprehensive site uh, in terms of what's coming up next for me. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Like I, I want to actually pivot. Not so much that I won't write poetry, but I, I I started writing a book many moons ago that I really need to finish. And so I think what's next on the horizon for me is publishing a novel next year, which I'm excited about. Um, and uh, it's actually, the, the the title of it is Motherless. It's, I actually started this book probably more than 10 years ago. And I've been so intimidated by great writers like Baldwin and others. I like, I don't want to put anything out that's not like super, super great. But it's that time that I really just challenge myself and, and go ahead and do it. Uh, I'm also putting out uh, a Best Of project I talked about a little earlier called uh, Prodigal Son, uh, the Best Of Tim and West. 
not not that I'm retiring or anything as a hip hop artist, <laughs> but I, I am really interested in doing more collaborative work, and I've uh, been meeting a lot of uh, artists here in Cincinnati that have me inspired to share share experiences in the stage with other people. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, but yeah, that'll be coming out probably in the fall in October. Uh, and then you know I have. Um, you know, the LGBT work that I continue to do with Teach for America. So we have four education summits that will be coming up in the fall, um, the first of which will be in Milwaukee, um, uh, September 28th through 30th. Uh, there is one that will happen in Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, October 12th through 14th, a third that will happen in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, the uh, October 19th through 21st, and then the final one, in Memphis, uh, that final weekend in October. So, uh, you know, hopefully we hope to reach, you know, 600, 750, you know, people across those four uh, really talking about, like, how we can work in schools. We talk about brave education, and it's not just about, I mean, I think the way that bravery shows up, right, when we talk about keeping schools safe, safe is such a low bar. Like, sometimes Mm. this really upsets me because I'm like, okay, your school is safe, like, and, and some people brag, oh, our kids don't get beaten up. Is that something to brag about? Like, your kids shouldn't be beaten up, period. Like, that's that's not a selling point of your school. That should be a given everywhere, right? So mm-hmm. what does it mean to push our schools to be more than just safe? What What, you know, when a student can be brave, when they can speak up and ask a question or take an academic risk, it's also about their intellectual development. Right? It's about their social development as a person who can self-advocate, right? And that person going into the job market or advocating for themselves for a school or a college, like those are the skills. When I talk about brave education, it's not just about, you know, uh, just brave for the sake of being brave. It's like brave uh, about the ways that they need to navigate their lives so that they can fulfill their own destinies, they can shape their destinies, they can shape and have self-determined futures. And I think it takes a lot of courage and bravery to do that uh, in, a, in a culture and climate where it's often thought that black and brown kids can't learn in the ways that white kids can, um, and that LGBTQ kids are often looked at uh, in relationship to their challenges, right, that when we talk about mm-hmm. LGBTQ students, it's anti-bullying, suicide prevention, HIV and STI reduction, truancy rates, and it's like if, if those are the only times you talk about LGBT identity, what message are you sending to those kids that, like, that they are, that they are nothing independent of their problems? Why don't we talk about LGBT kids and their incredible talent, their creativity, their brilliance, their interesting ways of seeing? And I, so I often push uh, everything from public health to education to say, even as we have a lens on all of the challenges that our LGBTQ students face, let's also not have a completely deficit-based model and approach to looking at our kids. Let's talk about their incredible resilience, their talents, and all the things that they bring as leaders to our world. And that's that's so important to, to lift that up, even as we are aware and attuned to the challenges that they face. Well, Tim, um, I mean, I want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for being there, not only in the classroom, but on the mic, talking, making life to words. Um, 
I look forward to seeing you in Cincinnati and going to that club. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, you got to let me know. You can come on down, and we can definitely have a good old weekend. And uh, I need to just know about stuff that's happening in Detroit. It's close enough now. I have great friends that live there, L. Michael Gibson among them. And, oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Per- persons like yourself and Curtis that are, that are in mm-hmm. Detroit. And, and, and so, I mean, it's, you know, I actually, um, <laughs> I, one of my favorite poems, I have to read it to you at, at some other point, it's called A Poem called uh, called Fly, and it's uh, a poem about Detroit that I wrote back when the meatery eatery was <laughs> a Oh, spot. shoot, that, that yeah, was Yeah, yeah, yes, we're going back. Yes. I, Detroit, is, Detroit always has felt like a, a second home. I don't know what it is about Detroit. It's just, it's very up south, I guess. It's, mm-hmm. it's a Midwestern northern city that has a lot of, a lot of south in it. <laughs> Well, you know, you are you are always welcome here. Again, uh, you know, definitely anybody. Uh, we're bringing we're bringing Black Pride back to Cincinnati. I'm excited about that. Okay. Yeah, it'll be happening. Uh, I think at uh, goodness June twentieth. It's kind of a Wednesday through a Sunday. So okay. I know the parade for Cincy Pride is on the twenty third. But we're going to be like that weekend leading up to that, and then after. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like if you know, especially people in Michigan, and Detroit, it ain't, it ain't that far. Get on down here. We're going to have some yeah, hey. festival stuff going on, uh-huh. and I may have to bring you here to like you know do something special. That'd be awesome. We take good care. Okay, thank you again. Right, thank you. I want to thank today's guest on Collections by Michelle Brown, Tim M. West. You can learn more about this poet, hip-hop artist, youth advocate, educator, and scholar at his website, www.braveeducator.com. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.